The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to the Word of God and seek to know God as we ask Him to speak to us through His written Word. Mark chapter 14 at verse 53, we come to the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Hear the Word of God. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed Him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God. Father, we pray for understanding. We pray that we would seek to see something 
further than we already know about the glory of Jesus Christ and his love for us. And as we think of Peter denying the Lord, we pray that you would apply this to our lives as well. Thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It seems that every few years there's a trial that takes place that is of great national interest. There was just one, of course, the other week and that was ended in a hung jury. The word trial of the century is often heard when these trials take place, although we have many more than one a century, I think. Whether it's O.J. Simpson a number of years ago or Jerry Sandusky or Bill Cosby now, but here in the Gospels, we have a trial which stands far, far above every other trial in the history of the world. The trial of the sinless Son of God. Here is the very Lord of glory brought before sinful human authorities and yet shining forth in his person with truth and courage even as he humbles himself to go the way of the cross, which includes this trial to save his people from their sin. Here we also see in the same vicinity of the courtyard, Peter, the boldest and the brashest of the disciples, falling into terrible sin, the denial of his Lord three times. What can we learn from our text, this text about the trial of the Son of God? First of all, for our first point, I want us to see that the trial of Jesus Christ displays that he is who he claimed to be. He is the sinless Son of God. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus Jesus repeatedly shows himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but here at his trial, he is much less veiled in his final answer when the high priest speaks to him, in his display of his Messiahship. Here he is before the Sanhedrin. This is the, the highest court in the Jewish nation made up, we see in verse 53, of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes all coming together. Certain ones of them make up this, this high court. And we find that they have come together to try to find a way to put him to death. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. This wasn't an impartial trial by any means. This was a trial that was going in a certain direction. We would call it a kangaroo court. And they needed a sufficient charge to bring Jesus to the Roman authorities because under the ultimate power of Rome, the Jewish authorities didn't have the power of capital punishment, which probably most of you know. And so they had to have a charge that was sufficient for the Roman authorities to see and to believe necessitated death. And their first tactic we see here in our text is that there's this line of false witnesses that are speaking against him. In verse 56, for many bore false witness against him. It doesn't say in the text, but it's probably very likely that these were paid witnesses, just like Judas was paid a certain sum. The religious authorities paid 
false witnesses to stand in the witness box and declare things about Jesus Christ which were not true. But the problem was that their testimony doesn't agree. It wasn't consistent among what they said. The funny thing about lying is that, as you probably well know, it is actually much more difficult to generate consistent lies and then stick with those lies as you retell your story. In fact, one of the one of the tactics of police detectives and so forth is get someone to tell their story multiple times, and if they're lying, it changes a little bit because they forget what they said exactly. It's much easier to tell the simple truth. That's not what these witnesses were doing. Kind of reminds me of a of a five and a six year old brother and sister who got into the cook cookie jar and it's broken on the floor and they scheme together to uh, tell their mother a story when she comes into the room about what really happened. I'm just imagining soon you end up in the realm of tall tales and, you know, maybe uh, invaders coming in and doing something and you know that that story is going to fall apart. Well, that's what was happening with these false witnesses. It wasn't going anywhere. One of them, apparently, or some of them talked about his prophecy that he will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days he will build another made without hands. If it weren't for John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, which illuminates this, we wouldn't have understood this, but we see that Jesus was referring to his bodily resurrection from the dead, and in fact he did say something like that, but it wasn't understood at the time. Well, these false witnesses speak their peace, and Jesus doesn't reply. In part because these accusations didn't even merit a reply, and everyone there in the courtroom in the Sanhedrin knew it. It was a farce. Their testimony fell flat. It didn't even need to be refuted. Jesus didn't dignify these witnesses with a reply. We see in verses 60 and 61 that he makes no answer. And then when the high priest urges him, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He certainly wanted to try to, to catch Jesus in something from his own testimony, like a, a, a real good prosecutor would do on a, in some kind of trial. But verse 61, he remained silent and made no answer. The silence of Jesus Christ here and elsewhere before Pilate to a large degree, before Herod completely, the silence of Jesus had a deeper reason than simply that these false witnesses didn't even need to be refuted. The silence of Jesus was a prophetic sign, a prophetic fulfillment of Scripture. In Isaiah 53, we know in that great chapter about the suffering servant that we're told that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This scripture is being fulfilled. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the prophecy being fulfilled at that very time. And so Jesus does not reply. So the high priest takes a different tact. We see at the end of verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And we learn from Matthew's account that the high priest asks him this 
under oath. In a sense, Jesus is under oath. He's being asked a very direct question. And this faithful and true witness, as he's described in Revelation chapter 1, remains faithful to the truth and to who he is. And he responds in verse 62 with this stunning response. And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Can you imagine the electricity in that room for Jesus to declare this? He's been silent, he's been silent, he's been silent. And now this awesome and solemn testimony in the face of a hostile and unbelieving audience. He declares who he is. And really, it's in two parts. The first part is very short. Only in Mark's gospel do we find the words, I am, in this form. Very direct answer, I am. And words that for any Jew listening would hearken back immediately to Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush, and God declaring his name is I am, that I am. A stunning answer. I'm sure everyone was wide awake at that. A clear declaration of who he is, a statement of his deity, a statement that Jesus is making, that he is truly the Son of God, God himself. But then the second part of the answer In verse 62, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Language of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees this vision, and there's this vision of the Ancient of Days and this Son of Man, this messianic figure that Daniel's prophecy speaks of, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, coming in the clouds of heaven, a picture of exaltation and of the Messiah's authority to judge the world. Jesus, in these words, is strongly affirming his divine claim. He claims to be the king of the world, the Messiah, the rightful judge of all. I'm sure it took the breath away of those who heard this, even though they shut their ears. When I was a boy, I loved the book Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. It was a great book. All the adventure and all the intrigue of these knights in England and the Saxons and the Normans and uh, jousting matches and wars and castles and armor and all this stuff. But one of my favorite parts of the book is when King Richard the Lionheart, the Black Knight, nobody knows who the Black Knight is, when the Black Knight is revealed as King Richard, back from the Crusades. And Prince John trembles in his boots. His brother has returned to take the kingdom back. I love those kind of things. I loved the book, The Prince and the Pauper, when, you know, the prince was really the king or the prince, and he was in humility and lowliness. He had switched places with somebody else, and then there's a place that he's revealed for who he is. But what a more breathtaking revelation in this declaration of the humble yet glorious Son of God, declaring boldly to this hostile audience who he is, faithfully, even 
unto the cross. All through his life, all through his ministry, Jesus has been careful. We find it in the Gospels. He's careful not to reveal too much too soon. And so Jesus reveals himself to his disciples according to a certain pattern. We've seen it in the Gospel of Mark that he reveals himself slowly, as it were, in a planned way until finally he reveals himself and Peter confesses him as the Christ. But he is still very careful, especially with the religious leaders, because his time is not yet. But here he makes it absolutely clear because the time has come. His hour is at hand, and he declares with power who he is. The trial of Jesus Christ displays that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be. And the question that each of us must ask ourselves is this, have I bowed before this great King and Lord in repentance and faith? Have I bowed before the awesome Son of Man who is coming one day? And Philippians 2 tells us that day will come when every knee shall bow, willingly or unwillingly, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you bowed? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Because left to ourselves, we, we all know that we are our own king. We are our own Lord. We want to rule our lives and do what we want. That is the mantra of the world. Do what you want to do. You're in control of your life. We see the response of the high priest and the others there. In verse 63, the high priest tore his garments. That was a, an outward sign of, of mourning and grief. Hearing such apparent blasphemy, tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Did the high priest really want to know? Was he really impartially examining the evidence? Is Jesus Christ the Messiah? Could he be? No, he was way beyond that point. Whether he ever did or not, we don't know. The claims of Christ could not even be rationally considered because to even begin to give way to the truth would demand a right response. If these leaders would have even begun to consider the claims of Christ and come to the conclusion that he was right, what would the response have, been, have required for them to immediately fall on their faces and worship Jesus Christ? That was the demand. If he was the Messiah. Truly, the words of John 3.16 were in evidence here. Excuse me. 319, 3.16 is just so familiar, I said it. 3.19, a few verses after that gracious gospel invitation, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why do people reject the light of Jesus Christ? Jesus is telling us here, their deeds were evil. They loved the darkness rather than light. It wasn't a matter of the impartial judgment of the evidence. Look at the miracles he did. Look at raising Lazarus from the dead. Look at feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, casting out demons. All these things, his wonderful teaching with authority. The high priest and those around him weren't weighing all this and weighing the evidence. Could he be who he claimed to be? 
He could not be that because that would mean that they would need to submit their lives to him in true repentance and faith in him. Why do people go on rejecting Christ? Because they've honestly considered and weighed the biblical evidence and found it lacking? Probably not. Maybe they have to some extent. More likely because fundamentally they want to continue in their own ways, which are always ways of sin, whether they're socially acceptable sins or not, to be their own Lord and God. We were talking in the Revelation class this morning about the God of sexual autonomy in our society and how dare anyone claim to have a word from God that would limit what their prerogatives in life are in that regard. I will not have this man rule over me is what the word is, just as they said it in Christ's day. We see here how Terrifying and ugly, really, is the nature of an unbelieving heart where they condemn him to death. And then in verse 65, immediately some, we don't know exactly, does this mean, were these the actual members of the Sanhedrin, some of them? It doesn't sound like it's just the guards because later Mark mentions the guards. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, to him prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. This outbreak of vitriolic hatred against the Son of God from religious leaders. You would think of them as maybe college professors, academia, um, calm, austere, solemn men. It shouldn't surprise us because really there's nothing new under the sun. Don't we still see such outbreaking of hatred now aimed at those who belong to Christ and ultimately aimed at Christ. They can't see him physically. But the persecution of those who belong to Christ, the world does not want to be told that there is a true God and Lord, one to whom all must give an account, one in whom we are called to believe and to trust because of the good news of the gospel. And we see the hostility of the world almost in the news every day somewhere in the news going on. But in another sense, such a response only serves to reveal the truth of the word of God. Jesus Christ here in the trial displays who he is, that his claims are true. May we put our trust in him. Well, we want to shift directions for our second point and the rest of our points, because here it's as if, Mark, we're watching a play, and this action has been going on on the stage, and we've been looking at stage left and the trial going on, and then the spotlight switches over to stage right, and there's Peter at the trial. So here's the trial, but there's a different focus. Peter becomes in focus now, and we see his denial of Christ. Apparently, he's followed Jesus at a a distance. We're told that in verse 54. Apparently, it's late at night now. We later see that there's a fire, and probably fire is being used for both light and heat. The elevation of Jerusalem is 3,000 feet. If you've ever been in an arid climate at 3,000 feet at night, it gets cold pretty fast. It's not like a place where all this humidity keeps the heat in. So maybe they needed the fire for warmth. But he had followed. Apparently, 
we feel this tension in him because he loved his master too much to desert him, uh, and he was following at considerable personal risk. The guard is warming themselves too. This is the same guard that took Jesus in the garden, and yet Peter is too concerned for his own life to be completely faithful. And we find that even the bravest of the disciples fails on this night. Look at the progress of Peter's denial. Just look how it happens here, just how the action goes. In verses 66 to 68, we see that he's in the courtyard of the high priest, and apparently the trial is going on close by. We know enough from Luke's account that Jesus is going to look at him at one point. So he's seeing the action, and he's hearing some of the words. And no doubt, Mark is recording Peter's memories of all of this. But there's this servant girl, and she says to him, you were with the Nazarene Jesus, and Peter denies it. And he might have been near the fire at that point, and um, he was warming himself by the fire. And he gets up, and he goes into the gateway, we find in verse 68, probably the entrance to the courtyard. And the rooster crows the first time. So the rooster crows once. Well, that's the first time he denied the Lord. But in verse 69, uh, we don't know whether she followed him into the gateway or what, but the servant girl saw him and began again to say, to the bystanders, so maybe to some of the members of the guard or other servants that were out there, she starts to talk to all of them and says, hey, uh, surely this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And then a little time goes by, and maybe he went back by the fire. Maybe it was cold. Uh, He's still there. And we find that This time, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He was probably talking to some of them. He was a talkative extrovert, I would think we would call him. And his Galilean accent gave him away. The Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. So Peter denies Jesus now this third time with an oath, bringing a curse down on himself if he's not telling the truth, if he's lying. And we see in verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter suddenly remembers how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Don't you wonder, weren't you thinking about that the first time the rooster crowed? I guess not. And he broke down and wept. And at the same time, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus looked at him. And Peter caught Jesus' eye. What can we learn from Peter's serious fall? Certainly, we are all deeply aware that we are, in a sense, no different from he is. So let's go to our third point. What are some of the roots of Peter's fall? And here, I want us to look back over the whole um, various gospel accounts and just think about the roots of Peter's denial of Christ. Sometimes as parents, if your child disobeys, you kind of think, well, what was the cause of that? Maybe 
Maybe it was just that childishness. Maybe we were up too late and they were really tired or they hadn't had anything to eat or they were out in the snow and they were all wet in their snowsuit. And who knows what the causes might be. And then there are certainly causes in the heart too. What were the causes of Peter's fall? I have a number here. Let me list them. One is an unsubmissive will. If you remember the whole way back to Mark chapter 8 when Peter confessed Christ, And Jesus began to talk about going the way of the cross. Peter said, no, Lord, that will not happen to you. Really reflect Peter's unwillingness to submit to the will of God. It reminds me of the Gospel of John chapter 13 when Jesus wants to wash the disciples' feet and Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And then finally he did when he understood it more. He allowed Jesus to do that. In a sense, we could explain it and apply it to our lives. An unwillingness to accept the revealed will of God. The word of God speaks to each of us. Sometimes it's very hard. It's pointed. It, it probes our hearts and our lives. It calls for conformity. And often we have unsubmissive wills. We reject God's word in some way, maybe not directly, but maybe indirectly. Maybe we're unwilling to submit to, we would say, the providential will of God, what he's doing through circumstances in our lives in a way that we trust and submit to him with hearts that are looking to him. I like the way Psalm 19 talks about this when it's talking about the word of God and Psalm 19 is this rich psalm about the word of God. But in in verse 36, this is the prayer of the Psalmist, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The psalmist is aware that selfish gain is a strong allure. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That's the opposite of an unsubmissive will. That's the type of prayer we should have. So Peter had to some degree an unsubmissive will. Secondly, sinful self-confidence. Not long before this, we saw in chapter 14, verses 29 and following, Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. And then later in verse 31, but Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Sinful self-confidence. A confidence divorced from scriptural distrust of ourselves. Now, normal self-confidence is fine. I'm not saying that we should all go around afraid of everything. No, I'm not talking about a healthy emotional state. I'm talking about something spiritual, a, a distrust of our own strength apart from the Lord's help and grace. Scriptural distrust of ourselves that we will never say, well, that will never happen to me, or I will never do that, I will not fall, I'm not like everyone else. You think about Peter's bold statements at the beginning of chapter 14 and then his fall at the end of chapter 14, and you think, did Peter really know what it was going to be like? I can't imagine it. I can't imagine having being right in the epicenter of all of this. What if the police would come to my house and drag me into court or something and ask me things? I would be quaking in my boots. I mean, I would hope that I'd be calm, but that would be a scary thing. 
I don't think Peter had any clue how difficult this was going to be. This certainly applies to all of us in putting ourselves in the way of temptation. Maybe for you, you know that a certain friend or a group of friends is not good for you. And if you go with them and do something with them, it's going to be be a temptation for you. And you might think to yourself, well, I'll be strong and I'll resist that. Well, don't be so sure. Don't have sinful self-confidence. Don't even go to enter into temptation's way. The word of 1 Corinthians 10, 12 speaks to us. So if you think you are standing firm, take heed lest you fall. But then thirdly, Peter's neglect of warning. Jesus had specifically warned the disciples in chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus had said, truly I tell you, This very night before the rooster crows crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter had been warned, but he did not receive it. He denied it, and he failed to remember it when the moment was there. God's warnings to us are gracious warnings to keep us from falling into sin. When I was five, I got my first bicycle. I remember it so well, and the training wheels were on it for a while, and then I got to that point that I could ride it. I remember my dad running along behind me, letting me go, and it was great, but he said, Son, do not put your bike down behind the car. I didn't really think about that. Guess what happened? Crunch. It was gone. I I still remember the day and the feeling, I did eventually get another bike, but it was a while. Oh, I didn't heed the warning. Peter didn't heed the warning. The scriptures warn us about so many things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Proverbs 6 and 7 warns us about adultery. 1 Timothy 6 warns those who are wealthy not to put their trust in riches. Proverbs 20 verse 1 warns us about wine and strong drink. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. To whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Whoever is led astray by it. These are all warnings. Scripture has many warnings about many things. Peter neglected to hear the warnings of Christ. Fourthly, neglect of prayer. In Luke 22, we find that Jesus has been praying and will pray for Peter. And for that reason, he would be restored. But prayer is really the outward evidence of sinful self-confidence and neglecting the warnings of the the word of God. We often sleep when we should be praying. We're lazy about prayer. Everything else comes first except prayer. What a great contrast between Peter, prayerless Peter, and Jesus soon after this or right before this, in Gethsemane, when he is praying. And there are these great sweat, drops of sweat as like blood, wrestling in prayer. To give up the private discipline of meditation on Scripture and prayer will eventually show up outwardly. And there's no other way to advance spiritually than to give ourselves to all the means of grace. So to neglect prayer or God's word is a dangerous thing. Five, number five, Peter's use of carnal means. In John's gospel, we read that when the soldiers took Jesus Christ, what did he do? He pulled out a sword and sliced off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest, defending Jesus with carnal 
In other words, fleshly, worldly means. When our approach to problems become carnal instead of spiritual, our approach to problems with our marriages, blaming it on our circumstances, blaming it on other things, blaming it on the other person, instead of putting to death sinful self, we have become carnal. Whether it's our financial woes or whatever they might be or problems in the church, I hear about, I read a church newsletter the other day, not a church that you know, but the church was relying on these extreme gimmicks to get people to come to, to do things, and the word of God was not being preached there. It's giving yourself to these earthly, worldly means instead of the spiritual means. And finally, Peter tampered with temptation, we would say. He sat down with the enemies of Christ in the courtyard by the fire. Was that really wise for him to do that? Was it wise to mingle with these people at this time and this place? Now, Scripture doesn't directly tell us whether that's wise or not, but my judgment is that that was not wise at all, especially in light of the recent warnings he had. Peter was sitting by the fire, but he was especially playing with fire. We must flee from occasions of temptation, which may be strong. And you know yourself, you know your situation, you know your life in that regard. Well, finally, look at God's grace to Peter and to us when we think of what happened here. Mark's gospel tells us that after the rooster crowed twice, Jesus looked at Peter, and there's no doubt that that look was very powerful in making Peter's repentance to be not simply empty remorse, but true repentance and faith in Christ. He knew the love of Jesus Christ. What do we see? How did God's grace to Peter come up? Well, I will just point out a few items. One is Jesus prayed for him, the intercession of Jesus Christ, which in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 32, is recorded. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that you, uh, that you will restore your brothers. In other words, Jesus prays for Peter's restoration and his effectiveness. It, it reminds me of Romans eight thirty four that we're told Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Just as Jesus prayed for Peter, he intercedes for us. This is the basis of our perseverance in Christ, not in ourselves. This is what prevented Peter from falling away completely, the love, the intercession, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But also, there was this look of sorrow in Luke twenty-two, sixty-one. Jesus' look of sorrow and love. What a look that must have been across the courtyard. We're not told exactly what the state of the trial was. Maybe these false witnesses were going on and on, and that's when this occurred. Maybe it was shortly after, and uh, after he had declared who he was. We're not told what the timeline was, but that look must have pierced Peter's heart. I'm sure he remembered it for the rest of his life, that look of sorrow and love. He knew that he had grieved his Lord, but he knew somehow that Jesus Christ still loved him. And so this understanding pierces our hearts as well, or it should, when we fall into sin. The power of Christ's love that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit and is renewed as we continue to believe the gospel. 
Third, Christ's word of warning and promise to Peter. If you want to go there, you could read in Luke 22, 61 and 62. We're told here in Mark that Peter remembered the word of warning. He remembered when the rooster crowed. Reminds me of David and being rebuked by the prophet Nathan, and suddenly it all became clear to him. It really is an example of the Spirit of God applying God's Word to our hearts. And then there were further means of restoration to come. In Mark 16, 7, after the resurrection, the risen Christ says, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. The angel tells them this. He mentions Peter directly. And then in 1 Corinthians 15:5, there's a special appearance of the risen Christ to Peter himself. We're not told when or where that took place. And then in John 21, there's that famous chapter where Peter is reinstated as an under-shepherd of the flock of God. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. All these further means of restoration that God brings into Peter's life. Well, certainly we have seen what a serious thing it is for Peter to fall, but we also see that our falls into temptation and sin are never beyond the grace of God. It reminds me of that famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that verse that says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter, that's like an iron Manacle, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Peter could have sung this hymn. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The author is remembering how prone we are to wander and to fall into sin. But Jesus seals our heart. And there's another hymn that is talking about the God side of it that says, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. Jesus is the one who keeps us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the example of Jesus, the faithful and true witness, the one who made the good confession before many witnesses. Thank you for him and his courage and grace and his faithfulness to us. Thank you for Peter's example, as hard as it is for us, because we know it speaks to us as well. Build us up in your word, and thank you that you are the God who keeps us to the end. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask in his name. Amen.